This week, Invisibilia, a show about the invisible forces that shape human behavior, is looking at the biased concepts in our heads and whether it's possible to change them. You'll meet the people who designed the Implicit Associations Test, a support group in Southern California called Racists Anonymous, and a young black police officer trying to train his fellow officers and himself to combat prejudice. You can listen to Invisibilia in the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Mark Marin. You know Mark Marin. He had his own TV show on IFC, stand-up comedian. He's been on Conan dozens and dozens of times as a comic. He hosts his super-duper famous podcast, WTF. If there's one thing that anybody knows about WTF, Mark's show, it's that he's done almost every interview for it in his garage in Los Angeles. Like, even when he booked Barack Obama. Did Mark Marin go to the White House? No, he did not. President Barack Obama, with his Secret Service detail and all, rolled up to Mark Marin's garage in Highland Park. And even though recording at his house is kind of Mark Marin's thing, as much a part of his brand as his interviews, he's actually kind of not into it. I don't really want people in my house. Yeah. Like, I have one bathroom. <laughs> you know, there's nowhere for people to sit. So when they come, it, it, if, if I'm alone, that means I got to go out in the garage with the guest and anywhere from one to five people are in my house, right. just unmanaged. It's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, selections from my new podcast, The Turnaround. Interviews with some of the best interviewers in the world. You'll hear more from Mark Marin. Plus, we've got Audie Cornish. She's one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered. She interviews people from pretty much every walk of life. People she might not really agree with personally, or maybe people she doesn't even like. So, is it hard for her not to say what she thinks? Like, just drop in an opinion or two she says no it's not about me that's like like 90 percent of what's guiding my work it is not about me it's about whoever is in front of me what they're trying to say what that means what's at stake for all the rest of us and hearing them talk plus katie couric name a famous person especially a politician odds are katie couric has interviewed them george bush jimmy carter colin powell hillary clinton Every time she's done it, it's always a, a high-pressure situation. You get maybe half an hour, get maybe one shot to ask her question. But the hardest part, she says, is simple. Just getting politicians to actually answer her. You just have to, you know, continue to challenge. A lot of times they won't answer a question. And, you know, it took me a while to have the confidence to say, I'm sorry, Senator, but you just didn't answer my question. Mark Marin, Audie Cornish, Katie Couric, all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Things are a little different this week. I've got a new podcast. It's called The Turnaround. It's a show where we find the absolute greatest living interviewers, Errol Morris, Terry Gross, Ira Glass, all kinds of people. And then I talk to them about how and why they're so good at what they do. 
It's in partnership with the Columbia Journalism Review. And this week on Bullseye, we're bringing you highlights from three of the absolute best interviews that we did on The Turnaround. First up, Audie Cornish. Audie is a voice you've probably heard. She co-hosts NPR's All Things Considered. On NPR, she's often doing live interviews about breaking stories, interviewing reporters and newsmakers who are on the scene after huge, sometimes really scary events took place. In a world where news moves so quickly, it's gotten easier and easier for hosts like Audie to slip up, maybe get a fact wrong, slip of the tongue. Honestly, that kind of thing terrifies me. But when Audie's covering a breaking story, she's careful, she's unflappable, it's kind of amazing. We want to update you now on an ongoing story, an attack on a pop concert in Manchester, England. Police there report 19 dead, another 50 or so injured. Explosions took place just outside the arena where an American pop singer, Ariana Grande, had just finished performing. Earlier, we spoke with Andy Bounds of the Financial Times about what more police are saying about this, this incident, which they say they are treating as a terrorist attack. They still haven't confirmed it definitely, but it seems very, very likely, especially as they've just carried out another controlled explosion on a suspected device uh, near the scene of the incident. Um, As you said, it's the second controlled detonation that they've done. Can you talk about where they think these explosions took place? It wasn't inside the concert hall. No, that's right. Audie Cornish, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. You have worked at NPR for like 95% of your professional career. Is there an NPR way of doing things, do you think? There definitely is. And, well, are you asking about reporting or hosting? I'm asking about hosting and interviewing, I think, specifically. Yeah. But, but you know, reporting, too. Your your husband's a reporter. He's a newspaper reporter, right? Yes. Yes, he is. So, like, I, I'm sure that you know what it's like outside of the world in which you I do. Operate. I did have a moment. I started at the Associated Press. Um, so what's the, what's the difference, do you think? Huh. What is the difference? Well, I would say maybe there's a carefulness, for better or worse. There's sort of pros and cons to that, but there's definitely a kind of carefulness to the work and thoughtfulness and a, a sort of approach that says, hold on a second, does this make sense? Is this a story? Is What's the narrative? Like, what are we trying to say? Who's the person who'd benefit from hearing this story? Like, you ask yourself so many questions. I kind of feel like when I was working at the Associated Press, the it was like, get it out now. <laughs> you know, it was like, it really was kind of who, what, when, where, why. Like, this is the wire. I mean, this is like you know, not today. Obviously, they do all kinds of great enterprise work and things like that. Um, But I think at NPR, there's a lot of carefulness. Um, As for hosting and interviewing, I didn't know Jack about it. I, like everyone else, just turned on the radio and, you know, Scott Simon or whoever was there and they were uh, sharp and witty and they seemed to know everything and read magazines that I had only, like, heard of but never actually held. And, um... When I became a host, I actually just, like, got a copy of Sound Reporting, which is a book uh-huh. that was put out this by... This is like an of, NPR Yeah, it was like the NPR. Guide. I mean, it's for the public. It's not like a training manual or something like that. But each chapter is written by various people who have been in the business for a long time, including Scott Simon. And they, they talk about, like, here's 
how we do what we do. Here's why we do things certain ways. And um, Noah Adams is in it and Robert Siegel and Susan Stamberg. And they're all just kind of giving their take on what they do. And it was really informative because, remember, these are the people who actually formed NPR, right? Like, it's not that old an organization. And so you still have access to all of the information and guidance of the people who helped make it what it is. I feel like when I've done, when I've been interviewed for print, especially for newspapers, 75% of the time, the interview is so purely transactional that they almost literally tell me, please say this so I can put it in my newspaper article. We got to talk to your press people. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> I think you need to work on your publicity. Um, well, listen, I don't know if you've ever been a reporter. Um, but I haven't. So that's why it's a, that's why oh, it's such I a see. mysterious box to me. Yeah, I see. OK, I'm, so it's two I'm not different... even a journalist. I... <laughs> you have tendencies. Um, it's two different things. When you are reporting, you are a detective, you're a scavenger, you are wooing people. I know for me, I was in love with every person I spoke to until I spoke to their enemy or the person with the other point of view. And then I was in love with them like. You're just coaxing. No one's looking at you. No one's hearing what you're, you know, what you're doing to try and get this person to feel comfortable enough to tell you things that will actually help advance your story. That is completely different from sitting down and having a targeted conversation that's supposed to unfold seemingly naturally over the course of several minutes, minutes you know will be edited down, and that need to have a beginning, middle, and end. It's such a different ballgame. And it was a very hard transition for me because you are an active participant in that story. You are a narrator in that story in a way that is very different than when you are writing a news report or a news feature. Um, I think public broadcasting, and I'm just going to say public broadcasting and um, its other haloed <laughs> kind of um, Colleagues, right? Like, there's a lot of there are a lot of products out now in the in the podcasting space that feel like public radio, even though they aren't public radio. They all come from that tradition, the idea of like sitting down and ha and trying to reach the high. The nirvana is is authenticity, you know, like a real connection between two people. That's on tape. That sounds sort of like pornographic somehow, which is not my intention. Um, but that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to have intimacy, like on demand. Do you feel like having a list of questions makes you feel pressured to not be as responsive as you otherwise would be or as present as you would otherwise be in the moment? So can I ask you a question? Is this a question that springs from criticism of... NPR and kind of public radio style interviews? Uh, no, not really. I, I get a lot of criticism the other way around. <laughs> I get emails that say, just ask your question. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't, I don't have, I like, <laughs> I'm just talking to somebody. Just ask your question. I see. Well, right. Maybe your wind up is really long, right? Or I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to figure out an idea with somebody. Right. And, and you're doing I, it out loud. Yeah. And I didn't figure it out ahead of time because <laughs> I didn't know that was going to come up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Huh. Listen, I think I feel that when I do have to interview someone face to face, because all of a sudden I can't really look at my papers. 
it is harder when you don't have all your notes and things in front of you to do the interview where it's just like you and eye contact. <laughs> Because if you break eye contact, it's just, like, very awkward and jarring. Um, when you're reporting, you don't care about that, and they don't care about that because they're like, oh, this is a reporter in front of me. They have a notebook. I understand the whole concept. But when you sit in the studio and you're face-to-face, people do expect you to be engaged. And um, I I still like paper because I still like having a map. I mean, I don't know. I think I'm just the kind of person I'm I've always been the kind of person that has a plan B, C and D. So I know like, oh, if the conversation goes in this direction, I have this couple of set of questions. But if they say something more like this, then here's another whole line of inquiry that I that I'm just as curious about. And I often have to be careful because if I go too long and the producer has to then go in and edit that after the fact, they sometimes can feel like oh, I have two great conversations here, but we can only air like half of one on air. And I've often fantasized about having more time, you know, to like when I hear people like you um, get to really have time with people and like wander a bit or like someone like Mark Marin. Or when I was growing up, Howard Stern, like I grew up like a big Howard Stern listener, and he's like such a great interviewer, but it like it just goes everywhere for hours, right? Yeah, um, he's a real and sprawler. Been, yeah, I'm like jealous of that because now I do everything with an eye, with an eye on the clock. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Audie Cornish, the co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. What are you trying to get out of one of the kinds of interviews that you do The when you have 15 minutes with somebody and it's going to air and be five minutes? Oh, God. I know that should be an easy question to answer, but I think the problem is I do so many kinds of interviews in a day. I do like a hard news interview with a reporter, and that's about just we're getting out some information, the who, what, when, where, and why. We're trying to do it in a way that's easy for everyone to digest and understand. That's are different those what... Are Go those ahead. what they are, are those the kind of thing that they call in public radio a two way a conversation with a reporter who works for you? Is that what you're describing? Yeah, or works yeah. with you? Yeah, I never use that term because it's like so particular to us; it makes no sense. Yeah, and when you add a third person, it's called a three way. And like every time, because I'm like totally juvenile, I'm like ha ha ha, but nobody laughs at that anymore. That's a weird thing that you have to do because in a lot of ways, that is a purely simulated conversation. Uh, You know what that comes from? What's that? When NPR first started and reporters didn't um, make their deadlines because you had to physically use pieces of tape and razor blade to cut together the pieces, they would be like, fine, you're doing a two-way. And they would send the person into the studio and they would basically use their existing written script that they had planned to do as a piece and, and kind of talk back and forth with the host. Yeah, it's it's an odd thing. So you have to enact you have to enact conversation. That's one category. What are the other categories? There's the uh yeah, like you said calling, you know, uh Joe Blow at a hardware store somewhere in the country and it's like the last hardware store or whatever and you're like, "So, <laughs> like what happened? What's going on?" you know, just some kind of like color uh I think slice when, of life. I, I think of a time that I was listening to As It Happens, the CBC show, mm-hmm. and they had this whole conversation with this lady who was like a prairie woman right. of Canada, and she had revived a possum by putting it in her oven. <laughs> I mean, it writes itself, right? But you would be surprised. Not everyone 
not everyone actually can tell their story. And so what you're trying to do then is actually help them convey the information with a beginning, middle, and end. So you kind of have to identify what the structure is and what the punchline is and make sure that you have all of those pieces in the conversation. So at the very least, you can patch it back together with a little bit of editing That's 90% of what I do. And then I have to hand it over to a producer. But I know that if I if I don't give you all of the materials, you can't make the sweater or whatever. So I, I spend a lot of time, even my note-taking, while I'm talking to people saying, okay, what was the beginning of this conversation? We're going to start there. We have hem and haw about what's the start. And then, you know, what's what's great and what's joyful is when people surprise you, when people laugh, when people sigh, when people make a joke, when people tell you, like, a part of it that that you're like, what? No one told me that. Like, I had no idea. You know what I mean? Like, it's like fireworks. You know, you there's a lot of planning that goes into fireworks, even though what you see in the end looks kind of beautiful and chaotic and uh, surprising. When you are on the air and it is your voice, is it difficult to represent the kind of transparent quality that is required to uphold the specific journalistic ethical point of view of NPR, the standard that you will feel okay, fair so, in like, all what those are you, What are you really asking here? Try it again. Is it weird? Is it hard to be tra- – like the, all the hosts of NPR news shows, except for maybe Scott Simon when he talks about baseball – Read as almost ciphers as a listener. like, And that is part of the goal of NPR News is to feel genuinely, I don't want to say dispassionate, but like that the, that the fairness and ethical standards of NPR News are that you don't show too much of yourself. That's that not you... the goal. Where did you get that from? <laughs> I, I mean, listening. I'm listening to your interpretation, you know, but... Well, how do you see it? How do you see it that's different than that? It's not about me. That's like like 90% of what's guiding my work. It is not about me. It's about whoever is in front of me, what they're trying to say, what that means, what's at stake for all the rest of us and hearing them talk. I don't know. Didn't, did you ever watch Law & Order? I have seen Law & Order. Oh, you're, you're like, too cool to say you, like, watched Law & Order. <laughs> it was in syndication for many really, a year. I don't All really right. like well, Law & Order. I'll Everybody likes Law & Order. <laughs> I don't really like Law & Order. I have a friend who literally dedicated, like, has dedicated a huge part of his artistic and creative life to Law & Order. And yeah, because he's I, an incredible human being is what it sounds like. I think he's a great I do think he's wonderful. <laughs> he's currently in the process of building a low rider dedicated to Jerry Orbach. Hey, oh, God. All right. First of all, let me get the number later because we have something in common. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because one of the reasons why people like Law & Order is like you don't necessarily know like who they're dating or you, you see little glimmers of who they are, and that's kind of enough. You mostly are there to, like, see the case of the week and how it unfolds and, like, whatever they're trying to say about society, you know? It's not about, like, them. And then in a way, you become closer to them. And I think that, 
yes, you are right. There are a bunch of people who are like, especially in this environment, think that public radio hosts are like dispassionate and that we're going for this false objectivity and blah, 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 blah. I totally understand where people are coming from with that. For me, as I get through the day, number one, I don't have that many opinions. People who have that many opinions are paid a lot of money and they're great at it. But I can't tell you I have that many opinions on this many topics. My show is literally called All Things Considered. And some days you're like, I don't know, that seems like a thing. Like you just, I'm curious as anyone else. Like, how does this work? Is it going to work? Why do some people say that this is a fact and some people say it's not a fact? And like, when did that become a thing? Like, I have all the questions everyone else has. So I just don't believe in posturing that I know more than my audience. I I don't like, I don't get anything out of that. Is this answering your question? Do I have to like climb down off a soapbox or something? No, not at all. I mean, I think that one of the, one of the essential things that you identified is the, the breadth of your responsibility is you know, in a way, and I don't mean this to say, <laughs> I don't mean this literally, but in a way it's impossible that you could presume to present all information about everything. And so essentially what you are left with is um, what is the best way to do what we can in a decent and fair way? But also like, I, you are intelligent. (laughs) Like, I believe voters, I believe listeners, I believe our audience, I believe these people are intelligent. And I don't think they need me to tell them how to feel or how to understand something. If I'm covering a mass shooting, do I need to cry to tell you to feel sad about it? Honestly. You have other issues then. If you need me to tell you it's a sad day in America. It's just a damn sad day. We know this. What you need to know right now is what happened and what we know about why it happened and whether there's going to be a real and substantive conversation about preventing it from happening again. When I get off air and go in my car, I will bawl my eyes out. But that's for, like, me to deal with. Why would I put that on the audience? And if it sounds like I'm getting really fired up about it, it's because, like, I actually am quite, I actually get quite annoyed by people who imply that we're dispassionate, that we're purposely sitting there trying not to feel something. When we're feeling everything, we just don't think we should burden you with it. Why is it a burden? Why is it necessary? I just think if, if if there's, like, all this crazy stuff going on in the world and you're sitting there in your car feeling it, like, why do you need the additional leap on of, like, oh, and the newscaster is sad? I'm also really old-fashioned, right? Like, I'm one of the people – I'm still the kind of person who, like, cries in private. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I will go and eat my feelings. Like, I'm not going to be – I'm not the person in the office that's, like, warm and fuzzy, so you're and in that way, you're all, like, I, but I don't want to put that on all of NPR. <laughs> like Many of our hosts are like sweet and charming and emotional. You know, I sit next to Ari Shapiro all the time, like Kelly McEvers, who just goes into like incredible places and brings you the full emotion of being there. Like, yeah, I'm I'm a total throwback. I'm the last dinosaur. I'm just like kind of OK with that. 
<laughs> thank you very much, Adi. Yeah, thank you. It was good talking to you, and I've, I've listened to you for a long time, so this was really great. Well, thank you. And I, I hope that – I hope very sincerely that I hope that you understand that I am, like, in awe of the work that you guys do. And uh, <laughs> Is that and the squeak, I'm, squeak I'm, of backpedaling I hear? No. I'm not one of – no, I'm not I, – I have asserted nothing. I have I, made I'm no assertions. I'm you a hard time. <laughs> Audie Cornish. Listen to her on NPR's All Things Considered. If you want to hear my full interview with Audie, pretty much uncut, subscribe to my new show, The Turnaround. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll also have it up at MaximumFun.org. Coming up, more of the best of my new podcast, The Turnaround. Mark Marin tells me about how he got Terry Gross to open up about her childhood. And Katie Couric on how she went toe-to-toe with H. Ross Perot. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye comes from Sunbasket. Sunbasket makes it easy to cook nutritionist-approved meals in your own kitchen with organic, non-GMO ingredients from farms and fishermen sent directly to your door. Choose from paleo, gluten-free, vegetarian, breakfast, and family options. You'll get pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow directions and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes. NPR listeners get their first three meals free at sunbasket.com slash bullseye. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. These days, I feel like I can't make sense of the news until I've talked it out with my friends. So I made a new show where we do that every week. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's my way of saying let's catch up. Our first episode is out this Friday evening, June 23rd. Check it out. It's been a minute on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We've got a special episode for you this week. We're bringing you highlights from my brand new podcast, The Turnaround. On the show, I talk with some of the greatest living interviewers about the process of interviewing. Next up, Mark Marin. He's a stand-up, an actor. He hosts one of the biggest podcasts ever, WTF, with Mark Marin. It's recorded out of his garage in Los Angeles in the Highland Park neighborhood. Marin does long, kind of free-form conversations with comedians, musicians, actors, once President Barack Obama. But when you listen to WTF, you aren't just listening for the guest. Marin is a very big personality, and it shows in his interviews. He's not rattling off a list of questions. He's giving a really intimate and revealing conversation with his guests. It doesn't always go great. It always reveals a lot about the guest, even when they're not into it. Here's a little bit of him talking with one of his first interview walkouts ever. The guest is Gallagher, you know, the... Uh, the comedian who is famous for wearing suspenders and smashing watermelons. If a comedian talks about himself, and that is funny, if a comedian is a storyteller, that, see, by your, by your rubric, you're dismissing He you know, can't people. work a state fair. Who the f*** wants to work a state fair necessarily? Oh, everybody. Really? Yeah. 
So in order to work a state fair, you have to take the Gallagher class. You have to work faster and more general. There are families out there, and they're not interested in your long, subtle stories. Okay, that's fine. That's a state fair circuit. But the comedy club circuit, the cabaret circuit, can indulge a different. Why can't you just see it as all being part of show business? Why are because you angry? Because there's no show involved. What? There are a bunch of Pete? slovenly. Uh, they hunch over. They turn their back on the audience. They take a that's drink their style. of water. There's a, it's show business. Why are you drawing lines? Why are you taking the other side of everything I say? I'm not. I'm just you saying You are. I'm almost, I, Why did you want me to do this interview if you don't think I know anything about what you're asking me I'm, about? I'm just telling I'm done. You're done? I'm done. You're just arguing. It's- Mark Maron, welcome to The Turnaround. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. The Turnaround. Is this a, one of 900 Max Fun shows? Uh, I guess. <laughs> What, what is the turn? Is it? I needed more podcasts, Mark. Well, where did you come up with that name? What is that name about? It's a nice Hank Mobley record that I like. And, uh, but I couldn't come I'm terrible at coming up with names. Hank Mobley. Well, one thing is, I've been on your show a couple of times before. Yeah. You don't even tell people that you're starting. Right. I, I thought we started right when we walked in. That was my assumption that everybody does it like that now. That's the power of me. You've had, had a nationally syndicated radio show. Yeah. You've been on 10,000 people's radio shows and podcasts. Right. So you know how it works. You'd been on many people's podcasts, I'm sure, before you started your podcast, which was a long time ago. Not too many. Not there too weren't many. that many. There was a couple. You've probably been on, wait, had you been on Pardo's podcast? At that point, I, I don't think I was on Pardo's podcast till after I started a podcast. I don't think my knowledge of podcasting really happened until after. But I knew he was out there. I don't believe you when you say that you thought that it just worked, that you start recording at the, without telling people <laughs> and everyone just wanders in. Well, I, I think I, that was a choice, Mark. I'm not saying it's a tr- it was a trick. I think it was a choice. I don't see any reason not to do it that way. It, it became a habit for me because the people that I interview have to walk through my house. So I have to try not to talk too much about anything other than do you want a coffee uh, do you need you know, and that is good like i'll make people tea sometimes if i have to make them tea or coffee then i have to be careful about talking too much um I, you know let them use the bathroom help them down the stairs you know let them see my house and then we get out there and i try to get the thing on sometimes i'll go out and turn it on before we get into the garage so i'll turn on the thing just so Everything happens organically, that they walk in, they have a reaction to the space, they sit down, and they get comfortable. And I I like that moment. There's a moment there uh, where people, they don't shift into being interviewed mode. Right. Like the surprise, and and it just is, is a testament to how many people don't necessarily listen to the show before they come over. Right. But But that moment where they're like, wait, are we doing it? And now, yeah, we've been doing it. So- you're kind of getting a more authentic, immediate thing there. Do you ever wonder what it would be like to do your show if it wasn't in your house? Kind of, but... Because you've done... I mean, you did radio for years. You know what it's like. I do, and I can focus on you, but there, there is something about for, you know, what it does for me personally. That, you know, in having people over, having them, you know, making them comfortable, making them a coffee, showing them the the deaf black cat on the back deck if it's there, you know, having them react to the environment and coming in. Like, it actually serves as a, uh, you know, come over and hang out thing. So 
I acknowledge that it's a job because I do a lot of them. And when I go out there and sit by myself and talk on the mic, I, I know I have to do it. And we, we do have to have a show up tomorrow, whatever. But there's something about the element of having someone over and having a conversation that, that still keeps it sort of casual in my brain like and sort of special and not work-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I feel like you know for I did we're in my studio in my office now. It's a box. It is. But for years and years and years, I did my show from my house. I did it there once. Yeah, and you know one of the reasons that I would like get dressed for it is so that people would know that I wasn't going to murder them. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a couple things. I, I don't know that wearing the fancy pants and shirts or make you any less threatening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> number one. <laughs> Number two, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a real issue at my house, too. I, I have to have a part-time assistant because I don't really want people in my house. Yeah. Like, I have one bathroom. <laughs> you know, there's nowhere for people to sit. So when they come, it, it, if if I'm alone, that means I got to go out in the garage with the guest and anywhere from one to five people are in my house, right. just unmanaged. Now, I don't think that, you know, most people are bringing criminals over. But I don't know. And there's not much to steal. But And I don't know what they're going to do. I just don't want them to let a cat out or whatever. Did you know what your show was going to be when you started your show? No. I didn't have no idea. It was all, you know, a, a flurry of panic and desperation. You know, we had been taken off the air in New York, and we wanted to do a podcast because we knew that the medium was an option. And, and we did segments. You know, WTF actually was supposed to be a thematic thing. Uh, it was lighthearted in a lot of ways. We we experimented with having a crew in the room, one or two people. We did short interviews. We tried to do bits that were refillable. We uh, you know we did uh, phone interviews. It was sort of a, a you know mishmash of uh, radio ideas in a lot of ways. But we knew we had freedom. And when I moved out here, when you came over, and when I bought the wrong mic initially. And told me how to operate GarageBand, and I still do it exactly the same way. The two things you showed me how to do, like, how do I make it bigger? Well, you click on the little one. Oh, good. And I still do that, and every time I do that, I'm like, Jesse showed me how to do that. <laughs> Which, So, no, no idea. When did you decide, oh, okay, I guess that what this show is is an interview show. Not that it's exclusively an interview show, but that is what the show is about. Yeah, I don't know that I ever framed it quite like that. I, I still feel like they are conversations. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm wary to call myself an interviewer. I can do that sometimes, and I do do that. But I think that what was starting to happen is I was just having people over. And, and, and usually it was initially like catching up, you know, what do, you know, what do I know about you? Are you who I think you are? Like a lot of times I'm working against my assumptions. We all make these assumptions about people. And some of these people I knew for decades and I'd never had a conversation with. So as those things be- became resonant with me personally and started to function for me as as a, a real um, kind of like spiritually nourishing thing to have conversations with people and also to make amends with people and also to reconnect with the comedy community, I felt like I was – you know, kind of like in, in, you know, out off the grid. And uh, I was very depressed at the beginning. But it became sort of a conversation show. And it became really, the conversations were relative to my respect or disrespect for that person. And also primarily like 
to like, are you who I think you are and convince me otherwise? <laughs> well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think that is like one of your, one of your top moves, so to speak. Yeah. And I don't mean, you know, it's not a transactional thing, obviously. It's a very sincere and uh, uh, open-hearted thing. Mm -hmm. But, like, one of your moves is essentially like a kind of challenge yeah. to the guest. Like, used to be more, yeah. Like, all right, well, I think you're this. Yeah. What do you say? It's kind of like that. I don't, and, it, and it's weird because what I've learned over time is those perceptions are always limited. And and if there are people that you know from their work that you're manufacturing almost all of it other than some sort of innate sense of who they are beyond their work, which is is very small. It's a, it's a, it's just a kernel of a of a of a humanity thing that you're making assumptions based on their music or the roles they play or the comedy they do or what they've written or whatever. And and you you build a person in your head. I mean, that's what we all do. That's how we believe things. That's how we develop relationships with celebrities or public people is that you build this person that that has given you this information. And the information is not an hour's worth of information. It's this weird assumption. Uh, and I think that you can see the person in there. So I think that's sort of what I'm trying to do. And I'm, I a lot of times my instincts are are wrong. They're mostly wrong, but they're not wrong in the sense that, like, I misread somebody. They're just extremely limited to my, you know, to my idea. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mark Marin. He's the host of the podcast WTF. Part of the frisson of your show, I think, is that you, while you want slash need to connect with people, and in some way that is the premise of your show, the secondary part of it is that doing so is in some ways not something you're entirely comfortable with. Like uh, stand-up comedy is this kind of – even though your stand-up comedy has always been so focused on how can I reveal something really revealing but then make you laugh about it. Like that's I, I feel like when I, when I watch you do stand up, especially yeah. when it's not a, especially when it's not your absolute most polished set. Yeah, what you're doing is like almost a contest to yourself. Yeah, of like if I say this thing, can I make it funny? Right. Um. But I, I feel Sometimes, like yeah. But yeah. I feel like that is in the context of this uh very ritualized thing, which is stand up comedy. You have all the power. You can hold right. a microphone. Right. You know how to make. You're making people laugh. You're dominating right. them in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is uh, comfortable because it has that context around it. Uh -huh. And on your show, I think part of what makes it interesting is that you are always fighting against an instinct to be a performer and have a comfortable distance because part of your show is and part of your life goal is make a connection. Right. I've, I've gotten better at that. And sometimes I'll try to entertain people like sometimes uh, I think with people, I'll try to charm people or, or be flirty or, or try to get laughs if I think it'll get get things going. But I've gotten very much better at listening. I still finish finish people's sentences sometimes or cut people off. But it's it's fairly dis I do it on purpose. It's like it evolved into something that it wasn't initially. Like I needed to connect. It was part of my tools for connecting. But now I'll cut people off because I want to go somewhere else. Like I cut, like a lot of times I'll interrupt people because I've become somewhat instinctively savvy of public narrative. 
So, like, how do you get around a public narrative? It becomes very tricky. And and all I'm looking for in the podcast is not only connection, but to get the tone of the conversation into something organic and and authentic. And usually it can happen. Sometimes it won't happen to a half hour in. I'm not saying that first half hour is bad, but I, I feel when it gives way. And, and that is the experience I want people listening to have. That's when I get emails. If I get emails that are like, why didn't you ask about this or that? I can't believe you didn't talk about that. It's, like, it's not really that important to me. You know, maybe that's important to you, but you know, sometimes I'll be like, well, maybe I should have. But other times I'm like, I don't, if you know that information or that information is accessible, I don't mind people telling it to me in the way they're going to tell it to me. But what's better is, and what the and one of the things that this medium is powerful at is conveying tone, emotional tone, and something shifts when something gets candid or something, or there's a little bit of emotional risk. You can you you feel it in your whole body with audio. So why not spend time in that place to where it's sort of like loose. And people are like, I'm just, I can't believe they're talking about this. I'm just hanging out. Right. That it, that intimacy is something that people are thrilled by. Yeah. And even if they don't know exactly what it is. Like if I get a person that's done a million things and they don't talk about any of them, but it's a great conversation. To me, that's like a big win. Yeah. Sometimes and, I feel like we, we, you've interviewed Terry Gross and I'll, I'll interview her for this show. And she's someone who for her, professionally reveals very little about herself. When she talks about movie hosts on TV in New Jersey, she, like, lights up. Like, she'll say some. someone will mention something about it, some interview guest. You know, it's maybe happened. We've probably been listening to Fresh Air 20 years. And, you know, somebody will mention something, and she lights up. And you think, like, wow, that is something that is completely incidental to the world, but a, a genuine emotional key for her. Those are important things in conversation. Those are exciting. But like having the opportunity to interview her at, at her request in front of an audience of 2000 at the Brooklyn Academy of Music Opera House was sort of a big deal for me. I really am proud of that thing because, they, like you said, there's very little information out there about her. So what I had to do, which I, I don't love doing, is a type of research. I think I do this kind of research anyways. But with her, it was very specific because she's such a mysterious person. And all of us have had the experience of talking to her alone by ourselves, you know, over a mic, and she's somewhere else. You know, people have been interviewed by her. But you look at the public narrative that's available and it's very little. I just so, I also want to make it clear if they need me to do that, I'm available as okay. well. Okay. And I and I and you know, I'll, I have, I'll get, I haven't done it. So it's not quite all of us, but I am available to be on if fresh air. If they need me to be on fresh air, I'll be there. Okay. This is good. Yeah. I am I'm, I'm so close to pushing some button that will make you really frightening. So <laughs> <laughs> but but the chronology of her life had some very big holes in it. And I knew going in, like, that's where she became her. And this is where, you know, she, you know, there were these gaps. She started here. She did this. She did that. But it's like, what happened there? But the the, the more beautiful thing about it is that, you know, the night that we have to go out there, it's a big audience. It's a big room. And, I, and I'm a comedian. And this is more about me than it is about her, is that, you know, she was sitting over there and I'm sitting here and there are people who love her. You know, and I'm here like it was one of those nights where I really realized, like, I'm here to service Terry and to make this go well for her. 
and to you know and to make sure she you know is okay during all this because she's not a live performer right and she's uh and because i think also i mean you're fully capable of doing it you did a wonderful job but because your normal context is a show that is in significant part about you. Right. And, and in my garage. Yeah. And you're recognizing, oh, I'm on Terry Gross's stage, not in my house. Well, right. Right. But, you know, but I've, I've gotten a little more gracious over time. Like, uh, <laughs> You're very gracious, yeah. Mark. But, but the weird thing was is that they were, I wanted to keep it lively, but I didn't want to upstage her. I wanted the interview to be what I do and, and to reveal things to you know me and to the audience that people didn't know about her. And, uh, you know, and I wanted her to feel good about it because there were moments on stage because I'm in awe of her and I, there's a lot of respect there. And I'm doing these questions and it's happening. The stuff that the, the, the areas that I thought were interesting turned out to be interesting and people really learned things about her that they didn't know and 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 I think you know there was a couple points where she's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there and and she was in control to a degree but she was still letting out things that the public didn't know and there were moments there where I could have made a joke or I, like I really made choices to to not upstage or 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 cut her off or take advantage of the audience. That in a way that I could innately do, and, and is is my instinct, and I think I was just very proud of it, and uh, and and I think she had a great time, and I felt good that she had a great time because I know she doesn't like doing that, and you know we we communicate occasionally, and I have a picture of her and I on stage in in my house, and apparently she has one in her office as well. Oh, that's really nice. <laughs> How do you feel when you interview people that you don't know about? Like, there's most people I don't know about. And sometimes, you know, like Brendan, like he'll, like sometimes he'll go look and see if someone's done interviews somewhere and he'll be like, yeah, they can talk. Right. (laughs) So, so sometimes that's all I need to know. Like, yeah, yeah, they, they, they can talk. And I'm like, I check that. We check that sometimes too when I'm not sure. Yeah. Like Werner Herzog was, that wasn't easy for me. You just interviewed him. He decided that he was going to, uh, uh, have or, or, or disagree with everything I say. <laughs> who is good at that too? Yeah, but there was a couple of moments that were beautiful. If I can get ten beautiful moments, ten a, minutes, yeah. not ten moments, ten minutes of yeah. like, wow, it was right there. That was it. That was the ten minutes. Well, Mark, thank you for taking all this time to do this. I'm very grateful to you. Thank you. I'm sweaty. Mark Marin, everybody. My full interview with him, it's an extra half hour, 45 minutes or so, is on my new podcast, The Turnaround. You can find it at MaximumFun.org, our website, or wherever you get podcasts. And be sure to check out Marin in the brand new Netflix series, Glow, which comes out June 23rd. Seen the previews for that. It looks really fun. We have even more from the turnaround after a quick break. Still coming up, the one and only Katie Couric gives us tips on how to avoid conversations at parties. America's sweetheart. Don't miss it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 
2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to TWENTY20.com slash bullseye. That's 2020.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're doing things a little bit differently this week on the show. I just launched a new podcast. It's called The Turnaround. It's uh, basically lengthy, in-depth conversations with some of the best interviewers alive today. People like Werner Herzog, Combat Jack, Terry Gross. My next guest, Katie Couric. Katie's worked in TV news for almost 40 years. She's hosted The Today Show, CBS Evening News. She's been on CNN. Name a super famous person. She's probably talked to them. Presidents, prime ministers, first ladies, movie stars. One of her most famous interviews was a 2008 segment she did on CBS with Sarah Palin. It earned her the Walter Cronkite Award. Here's a little bit. You've cited Alaska's proximity to Russia Mm -hmm. as part of your foreign policy experience. What did you mean by that? That Alaska has a very narrow maritime border between a foreign country, Russia, and on our other side, the land uh, boundary that we have with uh, Canada. It's funny that a comment like that was kind of made to, uh, I don't know, you know, reporters. Yeah, mocked, I guess that's the word, yeah. Um, Well, explain to me why that enhances your foreign policy credentials. Well, it certainly does because our our next door neighbors are foreign countries. They're in the state that I am the executive of. And have you ever been in involved with any negotiations, for example, with the Russians? We have trade missions back and forth. We we do. It's very important when when you consider even national security issues with Russia, as Putin rears his head and, and uh, comes into the airspace of the United States of America, where where do they go? It's Alaska. It's just right over the border. Katie Kirk, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Jesse. Nice to be here and to talk to you. Okay, so you've had every kind of broadcast journalism job, but I want to start with morning news because it is the thing that when I see it on television, I am most... It is the thing that I, when I see, I, I feel least like I could do that. Really? Like I can read a teleprompter, I can write some copy, but the parade, like the to do twelve things in one morning, yeah, is profoundly daunting to me. So when you went from being a reporter to being in the anchor chair on a morning news show. What was that like for you? Well, it was very exciting because I'm a real generalist. I always say that I'm five miles wide and half an inch deep. I'm very interested in a lot of different topics. And for me, morning television, when I was at the Today Show, really kind of fed all those different curiosities. And so one morning, of course, you know, there were mornings where we had very intense super serious news stories to cover. And there were other mornings where you got a real uh, smorgasbord of content. So it was just, it was a lot of fun for me. It was pretty daunting to to occupy a, a seat on a show that was such an institution and had such a rich history and was really a part of people's daily routine. 
and and you know it was very it was a very big stage and a lot of pressure but I remember sort of feeling like you know I'm just going to be who I am and let the chips fall where they may because I think even back then before authenticity became such a you know a buzzword I think people responded to someone who seemed to be their authentic self on well, television. It seems like it it seems like it would be hard to fake it for that long every day. Yeah. I mean that's a long time to be on TV being phony. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, no, you're right, but I also think, you know, if if I didn't know something, I didn't pretend like I knew it. If I wasn't right. super expert on sports and I was sitting next to Bryant Gumble, one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet when it comes to sports, I wouldn't pretend like I did. I would just sort of, you know, act like what? Um, which was, I think, people responded to because I think a lot of people in the audience probably were not as obsessed with sports as Bryant was. How carefully planned is a live interview on morning television? Do, do you have a segment producer who already knows what the shape of it will be every time? Yeah, well, or you know. is that something you're doing, you know, in the stream of things? It's a little bit of both. I think you, you know, are prepared. You understand the subject matter. I always, when I'm doing an interview, kind of um, visualize or think about what the response will be so I can come up with an appropriate follow-up question kind of beforehand uh, just because you just kind of want to be on your – bring your A game and, and know kind of the direction of the interview. Plus, you know, it's a very truncated period of time. Sometimes you have – gosh, four or five minutes now seems like a luxury because it's gotten increasingly shorter um, as time has gone on. But, you you know, you have to get – the maximum amount of information to an audience in a very short period of time. What's a time that you were doing one of those five-minute interviews and you got something that was so unexpected that it completely redirected the final three minutes or whatever? Mm, I mean, I've done so many different interviews throughout the course of my career. I mean, I, I guess... I guess this, the one that comes to mind is probably when I interviewed Sarah Palin and we were walking and I asked her about what sort of magazines and newspapers she regularly reads or read that helped establish her worldview before she was tapped. I was interested in exploring how people become so ideologically entrenched in a point of view and what has shaped that point of view, and whether it was William F. Buckley or even the Bible or what it was that kind of made her – adopt a certain political ideology. And, you know, that got a lot of attention, that question and her response, because I think, honestly, she was just sort of sick of me and had had it with me (laughs) and kind of was like trying to brush me off. But I think, you know, that was not an anticipated answer. And I tried to push her a little bit and to get specific about if she could name a newspaper or magazine that she felt had shaped her worldview. What can you ask a movie star that will guarantee the kind of... There has to be a certain intensity on morning television, particularly, a a certain kind of vibrancy. How do you get that when they've literally just sat down in front of you? Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's, I think people can sense 
a genuine interest and curiosity from the interviewer. I know when I'm talking to someone, I want them to feel, and I feel that they're the only person on planet Earth in that moment in time, that I am completely locked in to them, what they want to talk about, what they're interested in, and that I approach them with respectful curiosity, you know, um, that that I'm genuinely interested in what they have to say. And, 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 and I really work hard to not ask every, every question they've been asked at some entertainment junket, you know, that is... That's, I, I try to ask questions that are thoughtful, that will be illuminating, that will reveal something about themselves that maybe they wouldn't have revealed normally. You know, I put a lot of thought into the conversation I have with people, but I think the key is that no matter who it is, whether it's an actor or a writer or a politician, you know, a CEO, that that I know sort of what they're interested in and that I that I key into that. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Katie Couric. She's one of the greatest living interviewers. You can catch her now on Yahoo and ABC News. What are the physical things that you do besides going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, or giving somebody the uh, wrap it up sign? Um, I think, you know, I mean, I think if somebody is... is uh, sort of uh, has a high emotional intelligence. I think they can you can do a lot with your eyes. You can kind of urge them on or you can kind of look at your paper and that's kind of a visual cue that maybe they're losing you a little bit or you're going to move on to a different topic. The same tricks that you employ at a cocktail party. Um, you know, you you basically employ in an interview situation. That, that means just... you listen to people, you find them interesting, even if they're not. <laughs> and I remember Johnny Carson told this story about being famous, and he said, you know, the great best thing about being famous, and I'm paraphrasing it, but is that people can come up to you at a, at a cocktail party. You could have absolutely nothing to say, and they walk away thinking they're boring, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was sort of funny. Um, but anyway— um, I'm right now. I'm picturing you at a cocktail party, uh, t- chatting with somebody, and then giving them the wrap it up signal. This is a wrap it up signal at a cocktail party. Oh, excuse me. I'm just going to go freshen my drink. Or <laughs> excuse me. I'm going to freshen my drink. Why don't you two introduce yourselves to each other? That's really handy if you can't remember anybody's name, which I do all the time. I I am so terrified of that. Like I am so awful at remembering people's names. And I just I, – I am just floating through the world with that 70% fear. of my mind on the conversation, 30% of my mind in like a terrified loop trying to remember what the person I'm talking to's name is. I and know. I could be talking to my child and be in this situation. <laughs> well, that's not good. But Which um... uncle is this? I'm thinking to myself as I talk to an uncle. Oh, that's funny. When you're field reporting – or doing a feature interview in the field, like, you know, when you go are walking with Sarah Palin or you've interviewed over 75 presidents, um, any of those, <laughs> you know, where you get, you get an hour. I'm not that old. Um, maybe or half an hour and that's going to get boiled down. You have to develop this thing where 
you know, it's a it's a very different kind of conversation that is in part less about that convivial and spontaneous exchange and more about a search for truth. moments. Yeah. Or yeah, like, but also truth, but yes. To me it's about learning something, having someone illuminate a topic or talk honestly about something. It's also about how is this being communicated to the people who are watching it? You know, what are they learning from this encounter? I I try to channel questions that I think, um, you know, that that people watching will want to know the answer to. I think sometimes journalists really produce content for other journalists, and they're kind of in this competitive news-making game. And I think it's important for someone to say something new and different. But, you know, how much does it, again, serve the audience? That's what is always first and foremost on my mind. Are you embarrassed to ask anything of people? But Yeah, I, uh, I am embarrassed to ask people some questions. And I think there's, there's a way to ask uncomfortable questions in a respectful way. I just did a documentary on on transgender individuals, and I knew there was a lot of misinformation, ignorance among the general population, including me, about gender identity issues, the science, how someone, you know, I asked an older couple, and they were just so nice, uh, Kate and Linda Rohr, and, and Kate Rohr had gender confirmation surgery when she was 70 years old. And I talked to them a little bit about sex. You know, how does that work? Does Linda, you know, you're still in love with Kate, and yet you, when, you know, you consider yourself a heterosexual woman, you know, do you think of yourself as a lesbian now? Like, help me understand this. You know, that that was kind of potentially a really awkward exchange. But I knew going in, they had a willingness to talk openly and honestly about this that they knew I was coming from a good place of seeking to understand myself and help other people gain greater understanding. So in that situation, it was it was it was okay. It was appropriate. Now there are other settings where I never in a million years would ask questions like that. When I was talking with Larry King, one of the things that struck me about him, I mean, I, I don't know, I imagine you probably met Larry King at a gala banquet at some point. But... I had a date with Larry King, Jesse. What, like a romance date? Well, I, I wouldn't say it was super romantic, but yes, it was a date date. Oh, I'm going to save that's it awesome. for my book, man. I'm going to save it for my book. Oh, give me a break. Oh, gee whiz. Okay. Yeah. I'll let you do it out of, out of respect to you and your book contract. Thank you. One of the things that was so remarkable to me about his work, and, you know, like I watch a bunch of his stuff when I was preparing to talk to him was how comfortable he was asking a dumb question that was great. Um, and I think that requires a kind of a kind of almost foolhardy modesty to say, look, I'm this is a, something that's worth being curious about. I'm just going to be curious about it and see how it goes. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that that I had admire Larry's technique and and method. I mean, I think there's sort of a 
middle ground of being completely unprepared and open to ask any questions. <laughs> no, no, no. And I think he would tell I, you that. I that agree. was sort of his M.O. Like he wanted to know as little as people watching knew. But I, I, I sort of think there's that there's that happy medium between that and and having humility about your lack of expertise you did 20 squajillion interviews, and which of them were the ones that made your stomach turn? Was it presidents or movie stars or walking into a town and not knowing anyone and knowing you were going to have to bother people on the street or what? The latter never bothered me because I'm the kind of person who could come up to anyone and start talking to them. I, I don't have a shy bone in my body. I would say for me, it was, uh, you know, I think when you're interviewing someone who has deep expertise in a topic, and there's just no way you're going to be able to to compete with that expertise, but you are in a position of having to challenge that person, that is the kind of thing that would put, you know, get my stomach in knots. Or someone who is is particularly pugnacious like Ross Perot, who sort of would would be condescending and patronizing to me if I asked a question um, that was challenging. I remember he'd say, Katie, 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 you know, and kind of uh, bark back at me that way. Or Yasser Arafat, who if I had to challenge would be like, who told you that? And, you know, suddenly you're like, oh, I have to come up with like how I came to that question, why I asked it. You know, all this background on what motivated that question, uh, and, and that's that's very hard because no matter how much you study, if you go through the FDA manual about pesticides when you're interviewing the head of the FDA, they are uh, almost dollars to donuts. They're going to know more about a certain subject than you are. So it's how do you kind of push back when they can just basically bowl you over with their facts and information? How do you push back when they can bowl you over with their facts and information, he said, carefully (laughs) asking for an example? I think you just have to, you know, continue to challenge. A lot of times they won't answer a question. And, you know, it took me a while to have the confidence to say, I'm sorry, Senator, but you just didn't answer my question. You know, I had a very uncomfortable interview with Colin Powell once following uh, I think it was the anniversary of 9-11, and it was after the invasion of Iraq, and talking about sort of what what was the uh, rationale for invading Iraq and, you know, uh, sort of the Sunni-Shia divide and if it was going to basically disintegrate into a civil war and why is the United States doing that? If, you know, if you break it, you take it, which was a Colin Powell motto. And, you know, he was just getting increasingly angry at me. And uh, and I think it's because I was raising all the things that he was concerned about, to be honest with you. And he was seeing his own kind of questioning reflected back at him. And I adore Colin Powell. I think he's a great person and a great American. And I remember he got up and he said, Miss Couric. And I thought, oh, God, he is pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Katie, what do you ask people when you 
are freaked out or lose your train of thought or otherwise are lost and don't know what to ask. Oh, is God, there something... isn't that awful? I mean, it happens to everybody. Sometimes I have these little moments of panic, and I'm like, oh, no, where am I going? What is the next question? Because, you you know, you want to be listening intensely to what the person's going to say, but, you know, what is the what is the interviewer's worst enemy? It's that dead air, which I think is a shame because— Thoughtful conversation doesn't happen seamlessly, right? There are pauses and moments to think and quiet reflection, but it's very hard to do that in an interview situation. So, um, you know, luckily at the last second, I remember or I I, I ask a question that's totally random or, or I kind of really go back to listening and think, well, my brain is going to help me come up with a follow-up to what was just said. You could also say, what was your biggest disappointment about that? Or how did you feel when that happened? That's pretty general too, right? Yeah, you're you're probably better at asking people how something felt when it happened than I am. Yeah, you're trying to stay away. Sweetheart. You're supposed to stay away from how, how, how does it feel? How did it feel? I'm supposed I work for National Public Radio. I'm supposed to stick exclusively <laughs> to questions about birding taxonomy. <laughs> That's in our handbook. Let's just keep it focused on birding. That's what the people want to hear. I'll keep that in mind. Well, thank you very much, Katie. I really appreciate it. All right. Good luck with everything, Jesse. Katie Couric will have the full version of my interview with her on my new show, The Turnaround. Check that out, MaximumFun.org, wherever you get podcasts. Also, check out Katie's new podcast. It's just called Katie Couric. It's on the Stitcher Network. She's talking with some of the biggest names in news, politics, and popular culture. Folks like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. That's it for this week's Bullseye. If you enjoy the interviews on today's show, maybe you're a working journalist or you know someone who is or you just want to peek behind the curtain, check out our podcast, The Turnaround. It's at MaximumFun.org. Tons of great interviews. I'm really proud of all of them. The first one goes live June 22nd. But you can subscribe now. It's live on Apple Podcasts, the MaxFun website, and basically anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's a limited series, two a week, just runs through the summer. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Park news this week, well, we had quite a week in MacArthur Park Lake where a swimmer swam around for a solid four hours. Initially, he was largely ignored, but eventually a crowd gathered on the shore, including about 10 or 12 police officers, a pretty sizable group of firemen and fire trucks, and probably 50 to 60 bystanders. Oh, and also a police helicopter for quite a long time. Eventually, someone pulled him out of the lake in a boat. I presume it was a police boat or possibly a regular boat that just happened to be around that was commandeered by a police officer, sort of like in an action movie, like, sir, I'm going to have to use your boat. It was amazing. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas, our production fellows at MaximumFun.org, who are also the producers of The Turnaround and booked the interviews that you heard on this week's program are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally, the great DJW. 
Our theme music recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. That's their record label. Go Team are great. Check out their albums. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, you can check out Bullseye on Facebook. That's Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, or just search for Bullseye on Facebook. We've got the best from this week's show and much, much more. We post the important culture news, all the news that's fit to digitally print, plus dumb stuff we found on the Internet, like uh, just like a funny thing a goat is doing, pretty much. And, you know, you'll also get heads-ups on uh, who's coming on the show and all kinds of cool insider info. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.